Hello, and welcome to the sixth podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience a Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for the story's week ending, October 10th, 2014. So, um... Now that we have the intro, let's get into the stories of the week. So the first story we want to cover this week is the monster banking trojan botnet that claims 500,000 victims. You hear that, Nick? That's a lot of people. 500,000 victims. So security researchers have uncovered the infrastructure behind one of the largest and most voracious banking trojan networks uncovered to date. The QBot, a.k.a. QuackBot, botnet, apparently affected 500,000 systems before sniffing quote-unquote conversations, including account credentials, for a whopping 800,000 online banking transactions. More than half, 59%, of sniff sessions were reportedly from accounts at five of the largest U.S. banks. The researchers said online banking credentials for banks in Europe were also targeted by the Russian-speaking cybercrime group behind the scam which was uncovered by email security outfit Proofpoint. The security firm said the attackers launched the assault from compromised WordPress sites using drive-by download style tactics. Windows XP clients comprised 52% of the infected systems in the cybercrimes group's botnet. Wow, and XP, they're not... um they're not supporting they're not that supporting anymore. They're not supporting that anymore. <laughs> and the trustworthy compu- computing... It's gone. Where you at? Yeah, where you at? So that's that's no good. Um, the cybercrime group also made money by selling access to compromised systems to other nerdoers, right? A.K.A. bad guys. Bad guys. More details on the research can be found in Proofpoint's report that is located in our show notes. So it's a it's a really good PDF to look through. It's got screenshots of what happened and everything. It's a really comprehensive report. Um, something to just keep in the memory banks. Um, and that's funny because this affected banks. And speaking of banks... Speaking of banks, great segue. Don't you have something on J.P. Morgan? I do. J.P. Morgan Chase last week confirmed that hackers managed to access personal data for more than 83 million customers. Hold up. How many? 83 million customers. I thought it was 76 million. Including 76 million households and 7 million small business online accounts. Oh, okay. But the New York Times reveals that the largest bank in the U.S. isn't the only one to have been hit. It appears that... Nine other unnamed financial institutions have also been targeted by the same mysterious hackers group, Ooh. which also managed to seal some critical security data from J.P. Morgan on top of personal data. Hackers were apparently able to access 
only names, addresses, phone numbers, and email addresses for compromised accounts, but did not get actual financial information or social security numbers. That's good, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Furthermore, they were able to determine whether the accounts were private bank accounts or fell in other business categories such as mortgages. The Times also says that it's not clear why hackers chose to hunt for customer information rather than go for financial data. With J.P. Morgan revealing that it has not received any reports related to the massive data breach detailing fraudulent use of customers' data, what's clear is that hackers were apparently able to access 90 servers in J.P. Morgan's computer network completely undetected for several weeks. In addition to personal customer data, hackers gained access to something more valuable: a list of every application and program the bank uses to protect its servers which could let them perform similar attacks in the future by taking advantage of potential security flaws in those programs. It's as if they stole the schematics to the Capitol. They can't just switch out every single door and window pane overnight, one former employee very, had said. Very well said. Yeah. Very for, well stated. For J.P. Morgan, swapping out those programs is costly and time-consuming, people say, because the bank would have to renegotiate licensing deals with technology suppliers and swap out programs and applications for hundreds of thousands of bank employees, as the Times reports. So let's get into our next story. Um, is this also dealing with the financial industry? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> the huge cyber attack on J.P. Morgan Chase that touched more than 83 million households that we just talked about was one of the most serious computer intrusions into an American corporation, but it could have been much worse. Questions over who the hackers are and the approach of their attack concerned government and industry officials. Also troubling is that about nine other financial institutions, a number that has not been previously reported, were also infiltrated by the same group of overseas hackers, according to people briefed on the matter. The hackers are thought to be operating from Russia and appear to have at least loose connections with officials of the Russian government, the people briefed on the matter said. It is unclear whether the other intrusions at banks and brokerage firms were as deep as the one that J.P. Morgan disclosed on Thursday. The identities of the other institutions could not be immediately learned. The breadth of the attacks and the lack of clarity about whether it was an effort to steal from accounts or to demonstrate that the hackers could penetrate even the best protected American financial institutions has left Washington intelligence officials and policymakers far more concerned that they have let on publicly. Some American officials speculate that the breach was intended to send a message to Wall Street and the United States about the vulnerability of the digital network of one of the world's most important banking institutions. It could be in retaliation for the sanctions placed on Russia, one senior official briefed on the intelligence said, but it could be mixed motives to steal if they can or to sell whatever information they could glean. The J.P. Morgan hackers burrowed into the digital network of the bank and went down a path that gave them access to information about the names, addresses, phone numbers, and email addresses of account holders. They never made it into where the more critical financial information and personal information are stored. However, the bank security team, which first discovered the attack in late July, managed to block the hackers before they could compromise the most sensitive information about tens of millions of J.P. Morgan customers, said several security experts and others briefed on the matter. The attack was not completely halted until the middle of August, and it was only in recent days that the bank began to tally its full extent. American officials say they have been working with J.P. Morgan since the intrusion was detected, chiefly through the Treasury, 
the Secret Service, and intelligence agencies that seek to find the source of the attacks. But that is slow work, and one official cautioned against leaping to conclusions about the identities or the motives of the attackers. We've been wrong before, he said. J.P. Morgan, the nation's largest bank, has begun contacting customers and making clear that no money was taken from any accounts. There have been no evidence of any fraudulent use of customer information. Most of the household accounts belong to United States residents. The hackers ended up with the addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers of everyone who logged into J.P. Morgan's websites and mobile applications in the recent past. Still, the recent attacks on the financial firms raise a possibility that the banks may not be up to the job of defending themselves. The attacks will stoke the questions about regulations governing when companies must inform regulators and their customers about a breach. Kind of thinking like transparency vice translucency, right? So it was a huge surprise that they were able to compromise a huge bank like J.P. Morgan, said Al Pascal, a security analyst with Javelin Strategy and Research. It scared the pants off many people. Several financial regulators have warned that a coordinated attack on the banking system could set off another financial crisis. On Friday, George Jepson, the Connecticut Attorney General, opened an investigation into the breach at J.P. Morgan, while Benjamin Lofsky, New York's top financial regulator, began calling bank officials to warn them to take the threat more seriously. There needs to be far more urgency Mr. Lofsky said in an interview. J.P. Morgan has also been working with law enforcement, including the FBI, since shortly after detecting the intrusion, which affected about 90 of the bank's computer servers. The bank said it believed that its systems are now secure and that the threat of its hackers returning was over. To date, we have not seen any unusual fraud activity related to this incident, said Kristen Lemkow, a bank's spokeswoman. We have identified and closed the known access paths. We have no evidence that the attackers are still in our systems. We have apologized to our customers. But much remains unanswered about the intrusion, including just who the hackers are, which other financial institutions were hit, and why the attackers went down a path inside J.P. Morgan's computer systems that contain troves of customer information, but not financial data. The intrusion also highlights a possible gap in the United States regulations. Banks are not required to report financial breaches or data breaches and online intrusions unless the incident is deemed to have resulted in a financial loss to customers. Breach notifications laws differ by state but most laws require only the companies to disclose a breach if customer names were stolen in conjunction with other information like credit card data, social security numbers, or driver's license numbers. In some states, companies can wait up to 30 days a month to inform customers of a breach. Other states' laws are more vague. If you guys recall, I believe it was in episode 2 or 3, we released some state legislation that just got dropped in September on the various regulations governing breach disclosure. I believe we put that in our show notes. Yep, in transparency. In California, for example, banks, companies, 
and large organizations must inform the state's attorney's general office and consumers about a breach without unreasonable delay, a rule that some companies interpret liberally, officials say. This year, Kamala Harris, the California's attorney general, sued the Kaiser Foundation health plan, saying it took four months for the foundation to disclose some employees that their personal information may have been compromised. For years, there have been attempts in Congress to force the companies to inform the customers more quickly when their information has been compromised, but recent bills have failed to muster enough support. One bill, sponsored by Senator Edward Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts, would create a clearinghouse where companies would exchange information about the attacks. United States bank executives say privately that they already share intelligence informally about attacks which are occurring frequently on their systems. This summer, Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu called on Congress to pass legislation that he said would bolster the information sharing process. As it stands, our laws do not do enough to foster information sharing and defend the public from digital threats, he said. That the attackers were apparently able to move around J.P. Morgan's computer system undetected for several weeks is perhaps the most troubling aspect of the recent breach, officials at other large banks say. The hackers were able to attain high administrative privileges within J.P. Morgan's network, rooting more than 90 servers and rummaging through customer databases with detailed information for 76 million households and 7 million small business online accounts. As they looked around, according to one person with knowledge of the breach, the hackers gleaned some critical details of customers' accounts. With these, the hackers were able to determine whether the accounts fell within the private bank or in other business categories like mortgages. Some people briefed on the results of the attack contend that it was only a matter of time before attackers could have gained access to customer funds and critical personal data. Weeks into the attack in mid-July, unusual behavior on the bank's network was spotted and the attackers were stopped before they had a chance to pull any customer data back to their servers abroad. But they did make off with one file which has unnerved executives. That file contained a list of every application and program deployed on standard JP Morgan computers that hackers can cross-check with known or new vulnerabilities in each system and a search for a backdoor entry. The attack came after a recent turnover within JP Morgan's information security group. A number of staff members followed Frank Bizignano, J.P. Morgan's former co-chief operating officer, to First Data last year. This year, First Data agreed to pay J.P. Morgan over accusations that by wooing other executives to the payment processor, Mr. Bizignano had violated the terms of his former employment contract. By then, First Data had already hired J.P. Morgan's chief information officer, Guy Chirello, its cybersecurity czar, Anthony Bellafor, its head of compliance, Cindy Armine, and Tom Higgins, J.P. Morgan's head of operation control. Anish Bimani, the bank's chief information risk officer, remained. Mr. Bimani, who is well-respected in the cybersecurity industry, is a co-author of a 1996 book on cybersecurity titled... Internet Security for Business. Yep, Internet Security for Business. You remember that one? Ms. Lemkow said the bank was pleased with its current cybersecurity personnel. Quote, this is the highest quality team we have ever had. Last December, J.P. Morgan hired Dana Deasy as chief information officer from BP. Greg Ratray, a former Air Force lieutenant colonel who specialized in cyber defense, was named the head of information security in June. 
Challenges quickly followed. That same month, hackers found their way into the bank system. And now we have history. Uh-oh. So um, the next story we'd like to segue into is a data leak on a U.S. bond insurer. These data leaks are coming like crazy. Left, right, and center. So the Municipal Bond Insurance Association, MBIA Incorporated, which is the nation's largest bond insurer, said that uh, there was a misconfiguration in company web servers that exposed countless customer account numbers, balances, and other sensitive data. Much of the information had been indexed by search engines, including a page listing of administrative credentials that attackers could use to access the data that wasn't already accessible via a simple web search. MBIA Incorporated, based in Purchase, New York, is a public holding company that offers municipal bond insurance and investments. According to the firm's wiki page, MBIA, which was formerly known as Municipal Bond Insurance Association, was formed in 73 to diversify the holdings of several insurance companies, including Aetna, Fireman's Fund, Travelers, Cigna, and Continental. Notified about the breach by, and funny enough, Krebs on Security, um, actually disclose this so that that's pretty interesting notified about the breach the company quickly disabled the vulnerable site mbiaweb.com this web property contained customer data from cutwater asset management a fixed income unit of mbia that is slated to be acquired by uh, Mellencorp. We have been notified that certain information related to clients of MBIA's asset management subsidiary may have been illegally accessed, said MBIA spokesman Kevin Brown. We are conducting a thorough investigation and will take all measures necessary to protect our customers' data, secure our systems, and preserve evidence for law enforcement. Brown said MBIA notified all current customers about the incident Monday evening, which it was disclosed Monday morning and that it planned to notify former customers today. Some 230 pages of account statements from Cutwater had been indexed by Google, including account and routing numbers, balances, dividends, and account holder names for the Texas class, which is a local uh, government investment pool. The Louisiana Asset Management Pool, the New Hampshire Public Deposit Investment Pool, Connecticut Class Plus, in the town of Richmond, New Hampshire. In some cases, the documents indexed by the search engine featured detailed instructions on how to authorize new bank accounts for deposits, including the forms and fax numbers needed to submit the account information. Brian Seely, an independent security expert with Seely Security, discovered the exposed data using a search engine. Seely said the data was exposed thanks to poorly configured Oracle Reports database server. Normally, Seeley said, this type of database server is configured to serve the information not only to authorized users who are accessing the data from within a trusted private network, but certainly not open to the entire web. Worse yet, Seeley noted, that misconfiguration also exposed an Oracle Reports Diagnostics page that included the username and pass that would grant access to nearly all of the customer account data on the server. And I quote, malicious hackers finding dozens of universities or companies with social security numbers, health data, or other information is devastating, 
But stumbling on bank accounts and the instruction on how to empty them is potentially catastrophic, Seeley said. And I quote, Billions in taxpayer funds invested into one of the largest institutions in the world that were essentially being guarded by a sleeping security guard. What happens to those states when the money disappears? Good question. End quote. A misconfigured Oracle report server can expose massive troves of sensitive data, a fact documented time and time again by another independent researcher, Dana Taylor of Neat Root. If your organization depends on Oracle report services, please ensure that your administrators have read and implemented Oracle's advice on securing these systems. The accidental disclosure of customer data from MBIA comes amid revelations that foreign hackers, possibly organized crime groups operating out of Russia, hacked into networks of J.P. Morgan Chase. In public filings last week, J.P. Morgan said the breach exposed names, addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers for 76 million household accounts and 7 million small businesses. We just covered that in the previous story, so that's kind of chaining these two together. Something to keep in mind when going forward. A lot of things are getting breached, so you need to make sure that your assets are secure and that you employ these secure methods when having a username and password out there, and you monitor the blogs. If a breach occurs, you want to change that username or that password. Sometimes the username is given to you and you can't change that, but you can most definitely change the password in your security questions to align yourself to be more secure and reduce the overall risk. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a special on uh, shell shock and people have been patching and um, some companies have said that they've been hacked with shell shock and Yahoo was one of them. Yahoo um, Games, right? Yeah. So on Monday afternoon, Yahoo stated that their servers associated with Yahoo Games had been hacked as a result of Shellshock, but the company now says that its original conclusion was wrong. Uh-oh. A, a handful of its servers were impacted, but there's no evidence of a compromise to user data. Yahoo stated that after all, the servers in question were not compromised through the Shellshock vulnerability, but rather a, quote, minor bug in a parsing script. Quote, earlier today, we reported that we isolated a handful of servers that were detected to have been impacted by Shellshock. After investigating the situation fully, it turns out that the servers were in fact not affected directly by Shellshock, but by a minor bug in a parsing script. Regardless of the cause, our course of action remained the same, to isolate the servers at risk and protect our users' data, end quote. And that's awesome. I love that they said that. That's pretty Isolate cool. the servers and protect our users' data. That's pretty cool. You wanna, you wanna, uh, you know, drop. When somebody gets in the castle, the last thing you want to do is freak out, right? You got to have a strategy. And in this case, they want to protect the crown jewels, which is the customer data. And you know, I think the second stage of that is kind of figuring out what happened. Number one and number two, providing some level of transparency, but being translucent enough so that you protect your pro- processes, people, and products. The company maintained its position that no evidence has been found suggesting that user information was affected by the incident. Yahoo CISO Alex Stamos provided additional details in a post to Y Combinator's Hacker News. And I quote, Three of our sports API servers had malicious code executed on them this weekend by attackers looking for vulnerable shellshock servers. These attackers had mutated their exploit, likely with the goal of bypassing IDSs, or other filters. This mutation happened to exactly fit a command injection bug in a monitoring script our sports team was using at that moment to parse and debug their web logs. 
Stamos, who became VP of Information Security and CISO at Yahoo in March, continued saying, As you can imagine, this episode caused some confusion in our team. Since the servers in question had been successfully patched twice, immediately after the bash issue became public. Once we ensured that the impacted servers were isolated from the network, we conducted a comprehensive trace of the attack code through our entire stack, which revealed the root cause, not shellshock. Let this be a lesson to defenders and attackers alike. Just because exploit code works doesn't mean it triggered the bug you expected. Wow, that's crazy. So something was used in the wild, however, you know, everyone's up in arms. You know, they're like, "Oh, arms. we're compromised. We're compromised. It must be the it must be the new bug. It's in the air." Yeah. So, um, let's go into something else. Sure. What else do we peer have? Peer to peer. Peer to peer. Right. That's cool. I like peer to peer. Peer to peer. Right. It's very uh, very cool. Especially, I mean, you have payments, you have file transfers, thing or, things like that. So, so the student Andrew Odd discovered a steal unreleased feature for payments of Facebook Messenger by using the iOS and Mac OSX tool hacking tool SciScript. In reality, the presence of payments feature in Facebook Messenger code was first discovered by another security researcher, Jonathan Zardsky, a few weeks ago. The youngster dis- disclosed the discovery on Twitter last Saturday. He posted screenshots of the payment functionalities implemented by the IT giant for his Facebook Messenger. Odd explained that the Facebook Messenger will be able to pay in the same users of Square's Cash App allows users to send money with their debit card via their mobile phone. And I quote, The Messenger's payment option lets users send money and a message similar to how they can send a photo. Users can add a debit card and Messenger or use one they already have on file with Facebook. An in-app PIN code also exists for added security around payments. It's unclear whether Facebook will monetize Messenger by charging a small fee for money transfers or offer the functionality for free-to-drive usage of its standalone chat app, says a blog post from TechCrunch. The introduction of payment capabilities into Facebook's Messenger app has been anticipated many times but no one has ever demonstrated this existence. IT experts sustain that if Facebook has posted and boosted the design of the new feature, hiring the former PayPal president, Dave Marcus, back in June. Odd conducted the various tests on the feature once he uncovered, and he confirmed that he was only able to get debit cards to work in the system. In time, he made the tests bank accounts and credit cards were not accepted for a payment method. And I quote, Based on my understanding of the debit interchange rates, each transaction will cost Facebook roughly 40 to 50 cents. That's a Durban swipe fee plus an ACH fee. Odd told the site. And quote, The app didn't mention a fee to send, so it's probably free, at least initially. Over time, they may add something minimal like a $1 fee, end quote. Another hypothesis is that Facebook will provide this service free of charge to stimulate the use of its Facebook Messenger app instead of its competitors like Apple iMessage, Tencent's WeChat, and Google Hangouts. 
Odd also discovered a note in the code that indicates the functionality will initially only allow one-to-one -one transactions. And I quote, in the short term, we will only support single payment attachment, reads a note in the code discovered by Odd. Quote, multiple payment attachments will be supported in the near future. End quote. Odd, who says he believes the feature might be rolled into and out in the next few months, also found another note in the code that indicates the feature will initially only allow one-to-one -one transactions. So, Odd highlighted the simplicity of its payments process developed by a Facebook engineer and that users can authorize a payment simply pushing on a button. Then they enter the amount to transfer and send it. Another interesting consideration made by the student is that Facebook seems to maintain the transaction private and doesn't publish anything about it in the news feed. Facebook did not comment on the post. Well, I can understand them not publishing it in the news feed because you don't want to publish that. No, you don't want to take something, publish it in the news feed and say, hey, I paid Vic a million dollars. <laughs> you know, um, that's that's not a good thing. But, you know, I think that um, people are looking at code now. So when code is released, people are looking beyond the surface. They're looking at the comments that are within the code to unlock usability. Quite like when you're playing a Nintendo game back in the day. Up, down, up, down, A, B, A, B, select. Ooh, that's a good one. Right? Yeah. So um, just know if you're a developer out there, if you're a coder, your software developer, you need to make sure that when you're releasing the code and you have these minimized comments that are in, you know, in the code and things like that, people are going to read that if they get access to the source code. So it's something to keep in mind. Do you have something else for us, Nick? Yeah, so last, I think last week, or I don't know, they're running together for me, but we had talked about um, ATMs being drained by some uh, cyber criminals. And Interpol is warning that he, the attacks could spread worldwide. So I think right now it's happening in Eastern Europe. So criminals have infected at least 50 ATMs in Eastern Europe, including Russia, with malware that enables them to drain ATMs of their cash via, quote, jackpotting attacks, netting attackers millions of dollars. The international police organization Interpol has issued a global alert warning that criminals may soon use the malware against ATMs located not only in Eastern Europe, but around the world, including the United States. The malware, variously referred to as PinPad and Tupkin by antivirus vendors, first surfaced in March 2014, according to the malware analysis database, hashtag total hash. But Kapersky Lab says the malware was recently installed on more than 50 machines across Eastern Europe, including Russia. Based on submissions to VirusTotal, we believe that the malware has spread to several other countries, including the U.S., India, and China, Kaspersky Lab researchers say in a blog post. Meanwhile, Malaysia's The Star reports that over a three-day period at the end of September, attackers stole approximately 3 million Malaysian ringgit, about $1 million, from 18 ATMs in that country. But police have yet to detail which malware attackers employed, meaning it's not clear if it was the pin pad. Using malware to cash out, ATMs appear to be a hey new- Hey guys! Oh. What's going on? Hey, hey, what's going on, Vic? I'm in the middle of a story here, buddy. 
Well, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. I brought hey, some pizza. What's up, Vic? Oh, you man, got... he brought pizza, so we can interrupt the story if he wants. <laughs> man, you guys we don't even story for feed some pizza. yourself. I know. We don't have any food out here. I so. just see popcorn and uh, a cup of water. What's up with that? That's <laughs> how we roll. Pass We're the salt. on a diet. Pass the salt. <laughs> All right, so sorry about that, but um, you were saying something that a number of machines were affected, and you were kind of getting into... Um, you know the antivirus vendors and things like oh, that. Oh yeah, so about a, a million dollars was was uh, stolen from eighteen ATM eighteen ATMs in the country of Malaysia, but police have yet to detail which malware attackers employed. Meaning it's not clear if it was PinPad. Using malware to cash out ATMs appears to be a new cybercrime tactic. Past reports have been about malware, which was used to capture card and PIN information from customers. Sean Sullivan, security advisor at antivirus vendor F-Secure, tells Information Security Media Group, This pin pad malware appears to be the first case of malware being used to drain cash directly from the ATM without the need for customer data. So these guys really got the banks pinned. Yeah. They do. I mean, they're they're definitely... um, The thing is, when I saw the number of machines that were affected, I didn't think that it was, you know, necessarily that, that... critical in that series but looking into it i mean all it takes is one or two atms and you can pull out a large sum of cash so 50 that's a lot that's a lot of potential from a uh, from a, a credit card uh fraud scheme with pulling out money without even having to have any pins or any of the security controls well let me tell you this i know uh yesterday my wife called me and told me both my cards were declined, and they—they had actually. I called the banks, and they were actually cut off because they were compromised. And then, uh oh, on my way over here, I just got a a call from another bank and say it's actually my uh, Mastercard debit card. That one's been closed down too, which is kind of scary because if you're not carrying any cash with you and you just have credit cards, you're done. I mean, my wife literally left, had to leave whatever she was shopping at Target. She left it all in the in the. Um, in the basket. Yeah, in the so shopping it could, cart. It could have been part of all these breaches we're talking about today. It could be Jimmy John's, right, which was a previous breach that we talked about. It could be J.P. Morgan. It could be any of these breaches. And I think that, you know, this kind of hits home. Nobody's safe. Um, if you decide to use credit cards, even if it's chip and pin, even though arguably chip and pin is a little bit more secure, look at this recent attack that you're you're kind of alluding to now, talking about now. They got in, they circumvented any of the security controls that were implemented, such as the pin, physically having the card, any of that, said, you know what, we don't even need to worry about that, and next thing you know, they get the money, you know, so nothing nothing is really safe, because the money's coming out of accounts, right? So smash and grab. That's actually, that's what it's called, it's called a smash and grab. So, you know, they really have the banks pinned on this one. And it is a you know uh, smash and grab. So so pack. this this comes from I remember. Do you guys remember the stories? Long time ago, uh, they had ATMs were being deployed as they were just fake ATM machines, and the oh, guys yeah. would actually the get swipers. your skimmers. And yeah, stuff. they they would actually get the card and then grab your pin number because they saw you were putting in the pin number, yep. and then go use your card elsewhere. So uh, these guys don't even have to set up they don't a have to machine. Do that. No hard work. No hard work required here. Financial organizations should expect more attacks of this nature because it lets criminals turn ATMs into their own personal money machine. And that was from head of Europol's European Cybercrime Center, Trolls Orting. 
It shows that the criminal underground is extremely agile and innovative in producing new types of malware. But they're also helped to an extent by the very, very low security of ATMs, which are still running old-fashioned Microsoft systems. And they take advantage of that and the physical ability to approach them and make them spit out money. He also says the campaign is probably linked to a Russian organized crime, and he expects repeat attacks. He thinks we've just seen the tip of the iceberg in the case of these attacks against cash machines, noting that the only way to truly block these types of exploits may be to embrace digital currency. This could lead in the future to where cash will be something you see in museums. The pin pad malware literally allows an attacker to tell an ATM to dispense money, no credit or debit card required. An analysis published in May 2014 by Symantec says PinPad is a Trojan, which if installed, quote, enables an attacker to use the ATM PinPad to submit commands to the Trojan, end quote, and can be said to automatically delete itself if the infection isn't successful. How cool is that? As that suggests, the malware can't be used to infect every type of ATM. To date, versions of the malware found in the wild have only been compatible with the extension for financial services, XFS DLL, that runs in a 32-bit version of the Windows Embedded Operating System, according to a blog from F-Secure. Likewise, Kaspersky Lab says the malware affects only ATMs from a major ATM manufacturer, which it declined to name, but F-Secure says that based on the analysis of the specific APIs used by the malware, it appears to be corresponding with a programmer's reference manual published by ATM manufacturer NCR, which contains instructions for programming NCR machines that uses its NCR Aptra XFS self-service software for ATMs. You know, you, this kind of news is kind of scary. It makes me want to drink. Yeah. Sorry, take, guys. Take a sip. So, I mean, you know... This is this is pretty serious. So it looks like it's um, it's targeting the operating systems and the embedded operating systems that are being run and kind of used. Whether it's for POS, right? Because we've seen it in point of sale systems, and now we're seeing it in the ATMs. NCR didn't immediately respond to a request for comment on the report that its systems are targeted by the PinPad malware. Kaspersky Lab says that when infecting an ATM with the malware, attackers register a unique access code with the Trojan running on that machine. That way, regular users or other attackers can't accidentally gain access to the Trojan's functionality. Kaspersky Lab also says the malware recovered from the infected Eastern European ATMs was set to work only on Sunday and Monday nights. Once installed, the malware runs in the background watching to see if a designated preset numeric code gets entered on the pin pad, after which the malware activates and lists the cash cassettes inside the ATM as well as the number of bills each holds. The attacker most likely, uh, a money mule is what they call them, can select each cassette and instruct it to dispense up to 40 bills. Before the money gets dispensed, however, the money mule must then enter a second code and malware, malware can be set to disable access to the local network, presumably to foil any related monitoring that might trigger an alarm. So what you're saying is this malware has the ability to make it rain? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> to defend- Actually, quite literally. <laughs> right. this, is, this, is, this would be called the uh, 
the make it rain the make it rain virus the make could it you rain imagine worm. being out on a date with your your wife or your girl or your woman like and then you go up hey to the girl, atm i gotta make a stop real quick and then you go up to the atm you plug in the uh your your you know card then you do your four digit pin whether it's chip and pin you know you may do that step next thing you know just cash comes flowing out of the ATM. That would be crazy. <laughs> Money day. <laughs> right. It'd be like a cash can. Might uh, actually it would make the date uh, run a lot smoother. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah. <laughs> to defend against ATM malware attacks, Kaspersky's labs researchers recommended ATM operators focus in part on strengthening their physical security. According to footage from security cameras at the location of the infected ATMs. The attackers were able to manipulate the device and install the malware through a bootable CD. The cyber criminals behind Tupkin infected only those ATMs that had no security alarm installed. Likewise, it recommends replacing any default locks issued by a manufacturer because they're tied to default master keys that might work across a wide number of machines. On a system level, Symantec recommends that ATMs be set to never auto-run executable files from network-attached or removable drives. Sullivan says ATM operators could also enable BIOS passwords and force users to manually enable a CD drive or USB port before they could be used. Kaspersky Lab also recommends installing antivirus software on ATMs, which might detect and block malware, such as PinPad, but F-Secure Sullivan says it's currently rare for antivirus to be allowed to run on most, most systems. These types of computers are practically crippled to what we think of as a computer, he says. They are expected to run in a nearly frozen state. Antivirus software, however, typically, typically requires more dynamic interaction with the system, both to update signatures as well as scan and quarantine malware. An extremely light AV client with cloud-based logic is what's needed, and we, among others, are working to develop such clients, he says. To block attacks of this nature going forward, however, he says ATM manufacturers will have to work more closely with security researchers and educate them in the intricacies of their ATM platform software. ATM vendors would need to form a strong working partnership with their providers to make sure all environmental factors are known or else the security vendor is working in the dark, and that's from Sullivan. So guys, it looks like we're gonna need to go out and secure some ATMs. Absolutely, There's there seems like the... What do you think, they're running uh, Windows NT 4.0 Service Pack 4? No, I think it's older than that. I think um, that you know it's, it's pretty dismal, but it's one of those things where you set it and forget it, right? You're putting the ATMs out there. You I don't guess really it works, expect. right? You just guess leave it works. It. You know? You're making money. Absolutely. So I have some additional news or some some uh, other news. So what do you got going on? On importing old VMs, right? Oh, old okay. ATMs. We can segue into old VMs. So um, as you know, Amazon has AWS, Amazon Web Services, which is uh, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service, um, cloud offering to customers. So Amazon now has simplified the process for importing the VMware VMs into your AWS instance. So Amazon enhances vCenter Management Console connection to ease setup and use for VM administrators. Amazon has taken another step to appeal directly to key VMware customers, the virtual machine administrator. Earlier this year, the company told VM administrators they could manage their VMware 
virtual machines in the AWS cloud using the familiar VMware vCenter management console, all they needed to do was set up an AWS management center for vCenter. Now that setup process is even easier. According to AWS's Jeff Barr, the chief cloud evangelist, the initial version of the management center required a VM administrator to set up Active Directory Federation services or another security assertion markup language system. SAML is a standard XML data for formatting language uh, for authentication and authorization of systems for end users. In a May 30 blog post, Barr wrote, and I quote, If you are already using VMware vCenter to manage your virtualized environment, you will be comfortable in this new environment right away, even if you are new to AWS. End quote. User feedback, however, indicated that it wasn't all that easy. AWS's Derek Lyon, a principal product manager for the EC2 cloud, explained the value of Amazon's recent enhancement to its management center for vCenter in a blog post on October 2nd. We recently added a new setup option that significantly reduces the complexity of setting up the portal. You now have an option to use the portal without having to set up SAML integration yourself. To do this, you can use the AWS connector as an authentication proxy. When you use this option, you eliminate the complexity that comes with configuring the single sign-on infrastructure yourself. This is significantly simpler to set up." End quote. AWS Connector allows a vCenter administrator to sign in through a proxy as an AWS service administrator, obtain temporary security credentials, and proceed to manage AWS workloads for accounts covered by the credentials from the administrator's vCenter client console. AWS documentation on the steps involved can be found on our show notes. Want to learn more about how AWS launches AWS Management vCenter? See Amazon Open's on-ramp for VMware workloads. We'll post that in the show notes as well. But to continue on this story, Amazon's renewed interest in VMware workloads comes at a time that VMware is attempting to get some lift under its own vCloud Air Hybrid cloud service. One of its main advantages, according to General Manager Bill Fathers, is the ease with which vCloud Air can import and export VMware virtual machines and VMDK files. Amazon's interest in importing VMs brought a sharp response from VMware blogger Chris Wolf, CTO for the Americas, as Amazon first launched its management center for vCenter. In a June 2nd blog post titled, Don't Be Fooled by Import Tools Disguised as Hybrid Cloud Management, Wolf wrote, and I quote, Administrators will find this, Amazon, tool useful for importing virtual machines into Amazon and conducting basic management tasks from VMware vCenter. However, as I said before, the virtual machine is the easy part, end quote. Wolf lists some deficiencies with the management center portal. There is no easy way to move workloads back to one of your data centers or to another cloud provider. Existing software licenses don't apply in AWS EC2. A user can't quote-unquote, orchestrate VMwares or VMs across public and private clouds, and policies can't be enforced across multiple clouds. Wolf then concluded, and I quote, there are many things that AWS Management Portal does not do that should lead you to question its strategic value, end quote, 
but Amazon continues to invest in importing VMware virtual machines as evidenced by its current enhancement to Management Center for vCenter. With VMware continuing to dominate virtualization in the data center and Amazon dominating public cloud services, the two giants are likely to be butting heads for many months over the VMware virtual machine where they run best, the optimal environment. Amazon may continue to enhance its VMware workload migration tools until it addresses some of the problems Wolf cites. Until then, however, it will remain easier to get into the Amazon cloud than to get out. Moving data in is free, but moving it out costs you 12 cents per gigabyte for the first 10 terabytes. So, again, this this uh, definitely warrants the question of if I use one of these tools to import one of my VMs or a series of VMs that are handling a business process, sometimes you're charged on the ingest too, per byte. So you have to keep this in mind when migrating your current work environment, your current business process, your dev and test environments into an Amazon AWS cloud instance or multiple instances. That is something to be very mindful of going forward as it could be additional cost. So uh, with that guys, that's all I have on AWS. Uh, I heard some word on the street that AT&T suffered another insider breach. Is that true? Yes, U.S. Telecom AT&T has lately been having problems with malicious insiders, and the latest incident has resulted in the compromise of account and personal information of a yet unknown number of customers. The breach notification letter sent out to affected users and to the office of the Vermont Attorney General explains that one of the company's employees violated their policy and security guidelines by accessing users' account information including the user's social security number and driver's license number. Quote, additionally, while accessing your account, the employee would also have been able to view your customer proprietary network information, CPNI, without proper authorization, the letter says. CPNI is the information related to the telecommunication services you purchase from them. The breach happened in August, and it seems that some of the stolen information has been misused in the meantime. To the extent this activity results in any unauthorized charges or changes to your account, they have been or will be reversed, it says in the letter. The company has offered free credit monitoring service to affected users and advised them to place a fraud alert on their credit report. So that's some really good information to put out. They have also urged them to change the passcode on their account if they have it set up or to add one if they have it. According to the updated Vermont data breach notification law, notification to the Vermont Attorney General must occur within 14 business days of either the discovery of the breach or notice to the consumers, whichever is sooner. So it seems that they discovered the breach only quite recently. The employee in question no longer works for the company. Earlier this year, AT&T has also suffered a breach by the hands of three employees of one of its vendors who access customers' account and information in order to be able to impersonate them and get codes to unlock phones from AT&T. According to Reuters, the number of notified and possibly affected customers is around 1,600. So what do you think about that one, Matt? That's pretty serious. Yeah. Um, I think a better question is, I guess the customer account information and then being able to impersonate them and getting the unlock codes from AT&T, I guess that's for if you have an AT&T locked phone, if you wanted to unlock it to use it on other service yeah, providers. Yeah, that's what it is. It's is for. that what it is? Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty serious. 
do you have anything to uh to add Vic hey yeah I do have something to add you know maybe next time we should get pepperoni pizza and there should be two of them because I really could go for some more pizza I'm definitely hungry <laughs> I agree so I mean this pizza is kind of like customer data we got to protect it consume it and make sure that nobody else takes it but I think that <laughs> <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, um, I think customer information is very important. I don't understand why we keep having these security breaches. Uh, it's kind of scary to me to know that my information is sitting on a server out there that anybody could hack at any given time. So I and mean, all it takes all it takes is a so from computer network defense, we have ten thousand things we have to protect against computer network attack. You only need one vector to come in. And all the data is swooped out at that stage. And is it me? It seems like uh, a lot of these attackers are getting smarter and smarter each d- day by day. And they're absolutely adopting their tradecraft. Um, and it's you know sometimes you look at it as a uh, dismal oblivion, right? But I think we're up to the challenge. It's it's definitely uh, a yin and yang, right? You have to have a balance, strike a balance between the two, and. You know, security and convenience. That's the paradigm. So we got to strike a balance in that paradigm. And, you know, it, it's its definitely difficult. Well, with just the recent things, like with my credit cards and all that, I, I think it's really hit home. And I think I may change the way that I do business as far as, like, I may just, you know, carry some more cash on me. You're going to carry gold and then take um, off a few gold pieces, weigh it up, and then there you go. You or know? maybe barter. Barter, yeah, the barter system's always there. Yeah, you can't hack into bartering. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't. So not unless you're bartering bitcoins. Yeah, and you know what? We kind of joke about this, but you never know. There may be a day where the the credit card becomes obsolete and we start using cash again. I think that you know definitely the reset button's going to be hit. That's going to be the only safe method because anytime there's electronic information out there. Like you said, that's on somebody else's server. Someone else's responsibility to secure that. You can never fully trust it. Well, so... You can never fully trust somebody else to protect your data. All these breaches that are occurring... I mean, AT&T just got breached. Well, 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 let's look at this. This is really scary. So, we have credit card breaches and, um, you know, they can turn some of that off. But what's to say that I go into a bank one day and tell them, you know, my money's gone? You know, my life savings or... My retirement portfolio. I mean, I don't want to sound like the the world's coming to an end, but man, that's scary. I mean, if 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 you guys, you know, were wiped out, your finances were wiped out. I mean, it, it's definitely something to think about. You'd have to really come back to the whole situation of you have the blueprint, you have the knowledge, and you'd be able to re- rebuild your funds, right? If you start looking at how much you make per month, what's in, what's out. And you try to remain in the black instead of being in the red. I think that that definitely would come into play. But that's that's the one thing we have skills and tradecraft that you know we can utilize. But there's some people out there that they have massive amounts of money in savings for investments or whatever, right? You typically put that out there and don't touch it for a while, right? So you get a statement every month. You maybe check it every three months. But what happens when you're outside of that window for reclaiming the money and the money's gone? That's that's a huge issue. That you know, that's a good point, and that I actually do think about that. Um, you know, we do things in our daily lives, like you know, we 
we're out here in Maryland and, um, you know, we, we get storms and there's power outages. And sometimes I think about, well, what if there's a power outage that affects us regionally and I can't pull any money out cash? I don't have any cash. You know, we, we have we all probably have generators and stuff like that. Do we have a backup solutions in case we don't have cash? You know, cash? And a, you, you have know, to have, I mean, cash is king. If something like that happens and you have some, you know, some events that occur, such as like a natural disaster, right? You have to have those monies in place from a cash perspective. Now, I'm not saying, you know, a rack of $100 bills under the under the mattress, right? I'm saying, okay, you have something that can sustain you for a week. That's all I'm saying. Um, so with that, we're reaching the end of the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And eat some more pizza. Eat some more pizza and finish out the show. So talk to you guys in a second. Don't go anywhere. And we're back from our break. So we'd like to shout out All Points. Ned, we see you. Also, we'd like to uh, shout out a few dates that we have going on. Um, I will be presenting at IC Squared on 1016 on Infrastructure as a Service, Platform as a Service, and Software as a Service. We'll be going over some cloud security models, et cetera, et cetera. That's next Thursday in Laurel. Besides DC, 17 through 19 October, ISA International Orlando, 22nd to 23rd October, and Cyber Maryland, which is going to be the 29th and 30th of October. We hope to see you guys at those events, right? Be there, people. Be there. Hell be yeah. All right. So with that, we're out. See you guys next week. Thanks again for rolling with us. See ya.